Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, guys. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski. In this episode, I talked to wild animal biologist and science communicator Lucy Eckersley. Lucy's love for animals, it truly knows no bounds, um, including her work handling live animals as part of her job in outreach at the Royal Veterinary College, and also studying deceased animal remains, such as her study of wildcats using bone, her master's research. This conversation focuses on Lucy's use of bones as a material in her work. And we started by talking about how her love of collecting animal bones all started. As a kid, I was very into collecting things, particularly like natural history items. Uh, and I think I read somewhere about how like Darwin did it. And so I thought, well, it's clearly, you know, I, I should be doing this. Uh, so I collected rocks and shells and conkers, uh, interesting leaves. I would press leaves and flowers, uh, anything really that I could get hold of. There's lots of pictures of me as a kid, like holding loads of sticks because I was trying to choose which was the best stick. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Adorable. Um, I did also on hikes, I spent a lot of time in the river because I assumed that if I split enough of the kind of slate rocks that were in there, if I like hammered them and split them, I would obviously find a fossil. Um, that's just where fossils lived. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And that kind of then progressed into finding animal bones and thinking that was really interesting, trying to figure out what they were, what they came from. And yeah just kind of collecting things in that manner since a child that kind of intertwined with all the work that I've done so when I did my undergrad dissertation that was on Archaeopteryx which is kind of the midpoint animal between uh, dinosaurs and birds so it's obviously it's a fossil Uh, it's a very flat fossil they're they're extremely flat uh, all of the Archaeopteryx and understanding the bones and anatomy of that animal and seeing which were more dinosaur which were more bird was really really interesting then Going into the the master's degree, I did a lot of postmortems, and so really understanding in a postmortem where it's very different to what you look at in a book, because uh, it's all squishy. 
understanding what all the different areas are and being able to get the you know the bones out of an animal and preserving them uh, which I actually had to do for my project I had to preserve the cat skulls so I did a lot of cleaning out the cat skulls um, yeah, so I've always been a, a, a bit weird as well, I think. You, Anna knows, I am quite peculiar. Um, <laughs> and so that kind of bleeds into the type of science that I'm interested in. So bones obviously feature a lot in kind of go- classical Gothic literature. Um, and it's there's really powerful symbolism associated with bones. So things like memento mori and cadaver tombs. Uh, there's an amazing ossuary in the Czech Republic, which is entirely decorated out of bones. And I just find them really cool. You know, they are pretty cool, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> which is what makes you the perfect guest to come on this podcast, because you just find the material really cool. <laughs> yeah, I want it. I want it in my house. It's great. <laughs> amazing. So what what items have you got in your skeleton collection then? So I've got a number of things here um, and then I've got things that are at work because to have certain types of bones, you have to have certain licenses. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, obviously. Uh, yeah, just because obviously for human remains, you have to have a very, very specific license. Right. Um, but for protected species and various things like that. Um, so at home, I have quite a number of um, deer or what's called spiker bones. Uh, skulls and spikers are kind of the first uh time that they have the horns so it's the little ones you can often see those on plaques Uh, i've got a couple above my door um i have quite a few foxes fox skulls because i like to talk to students around london and show them a fox skull and try and get them to figure out what it is because they all see it and they're like yeah no i've never seen this animal and i'm like you have probably in your bins (laughs) (laughs) um so that's a really fun one to have i've got quite a few cat skulls because again i worked with uh cats during my master's not scottish wild cat skulls though again they would be a protected species Mm -hmm. Uh, and then i've got a few which were gifted to me either pre-prepared or they were gifted to me as a dead animal for me to deal with uh so i've got things like chameleon i've got a crocodile um baby crocodile it's very small it's about this big about a foot long uh but really really cool because they've got all these weird indentations uh, and really interesting teeth obviously and then i've got a mara which is an animal that you might see if you go to whipsnade zoo they kind of are free living around the zoo and they're the ones that most of the time visitors are like uh excuse me is that supposed to be on the path you're like oh yeah don't worry about it (laughs) Well, they're like little monkeys. No, they're they're like, um, maybe the midpoint between like a rabbit and a capybara. Oh, okay. They're kind of a small herbivore thing. um, And they've got very, very interesting dentition. Dentition kind of similar to a rabbit. So they've got the big front teeth and then a big gap in their skull. So that one's a really cool one. Mm, Very cool. (laughs) So yeah, that actually leads us really nicely onto um, my next question, which is about the process of... How do you go from a dead animal body to a bone material that is going to be safe to handle and, you know, mm. isn't going to continue to decompose, isn't going to presumably smell and, you know, is like actually yes. something that you can use for educational purposes? What's that process? 
So again, that's that's actually a really interesting point about is, you know, making something safe to handle because I work with young people. I obviously I take these specimens out to various events. Uh, lots of people handle them. And so lots of people ask, like, is this OK? And I'm obviously like, yes, my risk assessment says it's fine. Um, these are perfectly clean. But it is a genuine question that people worry about, whether they can catch things from the bones. Mm. And there is a possibility if you find something kind of in the wild that it could be something not great to kind of pick it up and sniff it or whatever. But once you've cleaned the bones, they're perfectly safe. Um, So that's why I've got them all over my bookshelf. Um, So finding the animal is obviously the first thing that you need to do. And again, you need to make sure that you are uh, within the law in terms of what animals you're allowed to work with. So there are protected species, uh, things like dolphins. You're not allowed to hold uh, dolphin remains unless you have a particular license. Uh, Bats and bats are protected in lots of different ways because they can harbour dangerous diseases. And then you also have to be aware of the different laws of countries. So I've uh, done some work out in the Masai Mara with a colleague and the places scattered with remains everywhere that I, I saw like half of a giraffe skeleton as soon as we entered the park I was like yes this is so cool wow. and it's just there um but obviously they say don't take anything even you know just one teeny tiny vertebrae because that can be seen as a a trophy uh, of you know visiting that area right. and so they don't allow that kind of thing to be exported so finding the animal and making sure that it's okay. Um, things like, I believe, otters and badgers, even if you don't if you don't have a license, you shouldn't even travel with one in your vehicle, like a dead one. Um, you shouldn't even take it to somebody who does. You just have to let them know where it is. And again, because of diseases and protections on those animals. Right. Yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> um, <laughs> once you've found it, though, and once you're okay that you've, you know, you can take it. Often that means that it's a roadkill and because that's the way that you find most of these animals, most of other ones will die somewhere in a much more hidden place. You're less likely to find them. So you grab it, you put it in a bag, probably, uh, take it home with you and then you want to clean off anything that you don't want to be preserved. So that's usually the, the skin, the feathers, the fur, the musculature and the rest of it. And so I usually cut away at that using dissection equipment, so scalpels and like scissors, uh, and remove as much of the musculature as I possibly can. And then, this does sound gross, um, cold macerate it or simmer. And so that means put it in cold water and leave it for a bit, or simmer it in a pot um hopefully not like a la crusette like you know so just an old pot that you don't really (laughs) mind um but you know it sounds kind of gross but then you know people who eat meat do same kind of thing even with bones to make broth as well so it's not that bad if it has been out uh being roadkill for a number of days it might be a little worse and it can get pretty whiffy if it is kind of rotten okay so yeah, I, I tend to do that at work because they're, you know, at the Royal Veterinary College, they have all of the equipment needed to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't really do that at home. I think uh, my partner would be quite upset about that. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit um, antisocial, isn't it? To be <laughs> boiling a carcass next to the dinner. <laughs> yeah, like boiling a carcass in a Camden one bed flat. Like it's yeah. not really fair. Uh, so yeah, you, you boil them and then you take them out and kind of clean off any more bits and the boil well 
no, the simmering, if you boil them, they'll all fall apart. The simmering will loosen up some of the kind of tendons and the stuff that attaches to the bones. And you can then clean that off with more dissection equipment or with an old toothbrush. Works quite well. Uh, and you may need to simmer it again. But there are other ways that other people will preserve bones. And so that includes things like leaving them out in the open air because nature is really, really good at cleaning bones. Nice. Much better than we are. And I, so I've seen that being done again out in the Maasai Mara. There's a group of hyena researchers who they'd found a hyena skull and they just strung it up in a pot above where their camp was. And it was being picked away by the flies and the various other animals that were there. But because it was secure, it wasn't being taken away by any predators. Again, I don't think I'd do that in London. Um, I think my neighbours would be annoyed. Probably the council would come and take it away. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to choose the, the technique best for your, your setting. Um, the other option is you can bury it. And so people do, do that sometimes if it's quite a large animal. Uh it's really good if it's really, really rotten and you would prefer not to be boiling it because even at work, you, they'd get upset if the entire place stunk to rot as a rotten animal. Yeah. So burying it can be good and obviously the natural decay process takes place there. But you have to be careful again. If you bury it in wet soil, it will just preserve it for you. Um, so it's because it's an anaerobic environment. Nothing is breaking it down there. So you have to be careful where you bury it. And it is more difficult to know when it's done uh, and when you should dig it back up. Right, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are some people who do that. I know in America that's quite a done thing, but I just don't bother. Um, there is how, also the use... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going <laughs> to ask, how long would you have to bury an animal before it gets kind of completely stripped? I think most of the time people will leave it for like a year. Um, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, if it's Quite a big a animal. Time. If it's if it's a small animal, if it was like a rabbit or something like that, I would reckon maybe like five months. Yeah. To, because otherwise, if you, if you dig it up beforehand, there's kind of little point to you have burying it because mm. uh, only little bits will have been taken away by that point. And so, yeah, I think you, you're best to kind of bury it, leave it for quite a while and then come back to it. Yeah. Um, there's also domestic beetles. So sometimes people who do quite a lot of skeleton prep will have a colony of beetles which eat away at uh, soft tissue. And they're really useful. Uh, usually you want to take away quite a bit of the muscle because otherwise the beetles will just be full. By the like, You're like, keep going, keep going. You're like, no, no, I'm stuffed, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so they would do like and, the last little scraps, I guess. Yes, yeah, the little scraps. And they're quite useful if there's kind of small bones or if it's a small animal and it may right. be difficult for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you do have to keep them at a particular temperature to want to eat but not too warm because then the animal will start to rot and they might not want to eat that. So they're quite difficult to work with. I think it's more conservators who work in museums and things who would have access to those. Uh, also, you can use biological washing powder because that contains enzymes that can break down fat and soft tissue. And so you can put a bit of that in while you're simmering your bones. <laughs> it makes it smell nicer as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so after you've done all of that, which is 
most of the gross bit is done at that point. You do have to clean out any small bits. So you may have seen if you've looked at schools in particular before, they've got foramen, so little holes all over, and that's where nerve bundles will go through. Uh, In particular, in the back of the jaw and around the nose, there's these kind of very small holes and tissue may get stuck there. So you either tweeze it out or, as a friend of mine does, uh, use high-powered water jet, which... Works really well, but then you have to be like okay with whatever was stuck in the hole going everywhere. And so, <laughs> again, best best in a lab setting that one. Yes, um, yeah. Uh, they may also bones can kind of hold on to quite a lot of oil. So if it was a marine mammal, for example, like a whale that's got lots of blubber, it will hold on to the oil. And if you just leave it like that, it will go a bit rotten and a bit mm. a bit smelly um, and it isn't very nice to look at either it can be more brown so with those you can use ammonia solution to kind of get away um, some of that oil and then you can bleach them so, so I, I have in the past as a teenager thinking that this was the correct thing to do used household bleach doesn't work um, they look great for a few months and then they start to like fall apart and go all chalky oh. and it, it's just what household bleach is made up of. It really breaks apart the bone and right. it makes it brittle and, yeah, essentially pull apart the bone cells. So instead, you can either use the sun as, you know, bleach white bones. You'll see how when, like, sheep's bones people often see. Um, but we use 3% uh, hydrogen peroxide in water and that helps sterilise it, but also will brighten it up and make it nice and white and shiny. Ah, which so, is what people expect from skeletons, right? <laughs> exactly. And when you show them one that is, hasn't had that done to it, people are really very grossed out and much more to the extent they can be holding a bleached skull and you show them an unbleached one and they're like, oh God, that's gross. And you're like, oh, really? Yeah, uh, I think... It just it looks much more like decay and like a dead animal when it's not been cleaned, um, mm. and people have quite visceral reactions towards it. It's quite interesting. That is interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I I do think that also maybe people associate it because when it's not clean, the idea of it it's more possible it could harbour bacteria and therefore True. is dangerous. Mm. So again, maybe a visceral, like, internal thing saying, don't touch that, you might get a disease. Yeah, um, I guess that makes sense. Like, evolutionarily yeah. speaking, most people wouldn't, would be discouraged from, like, touching dead animals, I guess. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it takes, it can take quite a decent amount of time, even if you're doing the boiling and all that lot, to actually get to a clean skull or clean full skeleton. And at that point people may choose to just have the skull. I have lots of just skulls because I like to compare skulls. It's quite a good tool to use for younger audiences. Um, But if you want to have the whole skeleton, quite often people will articulate it and so essentially put it all back together. And the best thing to do with that is, if you're planning on doing that, getting all of the spine and trying to keep it in in the order, which it's supposed to be, as you are... Uh, getting rid of all the soft tissue because otherwise then you get to play jigsaw with vertebrae (laughs) oh my god that sounds so hard so at the point that you're so you've removed all of the kind of muscular tissue and does that remove the ligaments and the tendons so effectively the skeleton would sort of fall apart at that point so that's why you need to keep it like in the right order 
Yeah, so I know there are a couple of people um, I've worked with who it'll get to a certain point and then they'll clean it a little bit more themselves and they'll push uh, wire through the inside of the spinal column and kind of pull it in at either end so that it all stays together because that just, even if you're very, very well versed with anatomy, it's just easier than putting all of the vertebrae back in order. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like how many vertebrae would a chameleon have, for example? It might actually be something that people haven't counted. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, because uh, there's only a few things that are kind of, um, they're the same throughout many species. So, for example, mammals, almost all mammals have the same number of cervical vertebrae, so neck vertebrae. Okay. Uh, and that is seven. And so that means that a chicken has more neck vertebrae than a giraffe. Um, ah. so that, I always find that quite interesting, but, um, there are other, obviously the tail has more vertebrae in it. If you don't have a tail, you're going to have less vertebrae. Sure. And so although in animals, they are split into your cervical, your thoracic, lumbar and sacral sections, there can be many, many more in some animals. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many are in a chameleon. I, I can't tell you that one. <laughs> That's all right. I, I mean, it feels like it would be a lot. I, I only asked partly because you said chameleon and also because um, it was recently Halloween and I saw a whole load of x-rays of animals just on Twitter like as I was scrolling through. And one was a chameleon. I'm trying to think. I would guess somewhere in the region of about 45. Oh, really? Something okay. like that. Mm. Maybe 55. Somebody <laughs> somebody, let us know if you know how many uh, yes. vertebrae a chameleon has. Because uh, I think we've got partially uh, a chameleon skeleton at work, but I've got two chameleon skulls at work. Um, so, Because, again, I love a skull. Uh, <laughs> and they're easier to carry around and show kids if you've just got a random skull uh, than an entire articulated skeleton. Yeah, I guess a skull <laughs> is quite robust. You can put it in a in a um, suitcase or in a, you know, in a bag yeah. quite a easily. Handbag. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so when it comes to kind of articulating it, uh, most animals, if they're, you know, say say a dog, they've got a decent uh, hole through their spinal column. So you can put that on a piece of wire or a piece of kind of bent uh, rod and that will hold that all in place and that'll be your basis for building the rest of the animal around it. And you might use wire in between the joints. So you kind of do something similar to, you know, uh, Ikea furniture when they give you the little wooden dowel and you put that in one side and then, yeah, (laughs) it's like really, really basic carpentry. Uh, You kind of do that with wire. And so you drill a hole in one side, drill a hole in the other and stick wire into it. And that just means it's much more secure than using glue or epoxy on its own. Mm. and you do that with everything sometimes people will try and make things movable so they'll want you to be able to move the legs or whatever that is way more complicated obviously otherwise you can just literally stick it all back together Uh, and even use super glue for particularly i use super glue when i'm putting the teeth back in because they're quite a set point and it's quite easy to just squash them back where they're supposed to be and they remain there. Whereas mm. with some other bones, say of the limbs or particularly of the hands and feet of animals, uh, I might want to reposition it afterwards. And if you use super glue, you can't do that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, so yeah, there's a long process involved with any kind of uh, conservation of animal materials. But I think that it can be really, really relaxing. Obviously, the the smelly bits and the gross bits may be less so, but I think the putting everything together, it is one big 3D jigsaw, essentially. Mm. And I really enjoy, even though I'm not great at writing them down, I'm dreadful with spelling, but I really enjoy learning all of the anatomical names and because they just sound fantastic. So one of my favourites is foramen magnum, which is the biggest hole in your skull, um, which is where your spinal column enters. And then the bone underneath it, which is called the atlas, um, which is your first cervical vertebrae. And that it's called the atlas because it's supposed to be holding up the weight of the head, like Atlas does in Greek mythology. That's cool. It, it, it's pretty cool. I love stuff like that. I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So then you have your finished skeleton once it's all articulated and glued together and stuff. Yeah. And that can be used, obviously, mostly for educational purposes um, or if you're like me and a bit peculiar for decoration purposes, however you wish. <laughs> Ornamental purposes. Yeah. I love it. Um, what have you learnt by working with bone in this way? So I have learned that um, one thing in particular, that people are really, really interested in bones. I think that sometimes people are worried that people will just find it like genuinely gross and actually think that you shouldn't be talking about this at all. But people have the morbid curiosity, even even human remains, people are interested in them. And so I like to use them as a kind of starter when I'm talking particularly to audiences who might not consider, for example, higher education as something for them. I will start off, I'll hand them a fox skull and be like, what do you think that is then? And they'll be like, uh, it's a skull. Yeah, yes, but what animal is it? And then they have to start looking at the teeth and the position mm. of the eyes. Loads of really interesting things that they can glean from this this one object. And so I think that they're really amazing tools for science communication. Um, I have learned that, yes, you shouldn't do the maceration of the bones at home. 
<laughs> just don't do it. Sounds like you learned that one the hard way. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, unless you have like a garage and some really good, you know, kind of airflow out oh, to yeah, the outside. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, just really definitely not in this far. Um, I've also learned that when you're working with small animal bones, don't do it when you're quite stressed because they are super, super teeny tiny. They're so minuscule and... <laughs> They all look the same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they are just a bit ridiculous sometimes. Uh, there was, when I was doing my, my thesis in my master's, I was having to measure cat skulls and the cat skulls had been uh, collected by the National Museum Centre in Scotland over several years and they were in boxes with their number on the outside. And every time I'd open the box and be like, please, please let it be an intact skull. Because if it wasn't, I had to kind of reassemble it and then measure it. And it took so long. Some of the bones are minuscule, yeah. um, particularly if they were young, uh, young individuals. So I have learned, yes, don't do that when you're stressed or if you're not in the right mood for it. Um, also, bones can be quite fickle. So as as a material, they're quite odd um, because they're made out of a collagen network so the collagen the protein which allows them to be flexible and then they have calcium phosphate deposits so mineral deposits throughout which allows them to be hard so if you do the wrong kind of or you you put them in the wrong kind of chemical composition when you're cleaning them when you're uh, bleaching them you can really really alter their properties so you can make them like i said with household bleach really really brittle and chalky or you can actually even make them bendy so if you put bones yeah it is kind of gross but it is also quite a fun home experiment if you um, have chicken bones so if you put a chicken bone in vinegar that uh, removes the calcium phosphate it dissolves it because it's a a weak acid and it leaves just the the flexible nature of the um the collagen so if you can tie it in a knot it's quite cool (laughs) that's so cool i'm definitely gonna try that i don't actually eat meat but maybe i'll yeah find a bone somewhere <laughs> I, you can find bones anywhere honestly um, well, i, I seem so. to all the time yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i i have found that although people are interested in bones when i continually pick them up and put them in my bag people are still a little bit concerned <laughs> for me in general um and also I've learned uh, whales are really heavy and I shouldn't try and say, yes, I'm totally fine picking up this massive bit of whale vertebrae um, on my own. It will really hurt your back. Oh, um, no. I- <laughs> Ironically, considering you're picking up a vertebrae. <laughs> yes, literally. <laughs> How big is a whale verte- vertebra? Vertebra? Ver- ver- vertebra, vertebrae. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I think people backbone. say it either way. Okay. A whale backbone. So uh, we have actually a whale backbone um, in the RVC's museum. And so that one's from a blue whale. And I would say that because if you think of just one vertebrae on its yes. own, yeah. it's got the spinous processes. So it'll have, particularly if it's in the top part of your spine, so your thoracic, um, it will have two projections out to the side, one projection out the top, and that is for ligaments to attach to. So that's why if you ever see, say, a horse skeleton, the bit where you would sit looks like 
you just won't be able to sit on it because it's all your bony projections. Right. And it's actually, that's where the um, a ligament attaches called the nuchal ligament from the kind of shoulders all the way up to the back of the skull. And that's how they keep their super heavy head up. Um, and that's actually, they have to kind of do a muscular motion to put their head down. Uh, and that's really useful for horses because horses can sleep stood up. And yeah. so... If you fell asleep and your your head hit the floor, um, that wouldn't be very <laughs> yes, good. Yes, true. So its natural head position is kind of upright. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh wow, so yeah. interesting. Um, so d- d- random one, but yeah. So it'll have these these uh, spinous processes, and so the width of the blue whale one is about I would say between three and four foot wide, wow. and then about three foot high. So they are enormous. Uh, I have a minky whale vertebrae uh, at work as well, and that one is probably more like a foot and a half tall uh-huh. and two foot wide. So they can be absolutely enormous. And then imagine the vertebrae of a mouse. They are <laughs> tiny and ridiculous. <laughs> so yeah, yeah they, totally. you can have, you can work with very, very different uh, areas in terms of which animal you choose to, to collect or clean. But the whale that we collected was actually up in Uist or Wist in Scotland. A really beautiful area for swimming, I believe. Uh, so definitely would would recommend visiting. <laughs> we we went to an extremely remote island because they had let us know that there was a decomposing whale up there, and we went to collect it for the museum in Scotland. Oh, wow. And it was really, really decomposing. It was oh. half embedded in sand. Um, it was mostly filled with maggots, and oh, it we yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> it was, it was really, really like I, I find gross things quite interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm not there going like, oh yeah, maggots get in, but. I still think it's really cool. Yeah. But when you're pulling out a massive whale head, which this one was maybe maybe about four and a half foot long, the whale head. Yeah. And obviously it's got brain tissue in there, which is quite a lot of fat, and the maggots have been at that. Sorry, listeners, this is gross. Um, <laughs> I'll put a warning at the top of the episode, maybe. But... <laughs> yeah. I was wondering that then. I was like, oh, no, this has gone really, really gross. But so does everything that I talk about. It always ends up like this. <laughs> it's all right. I've invited um, you on to talk about gross stuff. So we've got a green card. Good, good. <laughs> good, good. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was essentially filled with... Uh, very very decomposed matter um which is if you're doing a post-mortem they describe it as friable which means like it's breaking apart because of the the putrefaction so putrefaction is your own internal enzymes and bodily fluids turning against you after you've died decomposition is everything else and so yeah they'll describe it as friable which i've always thought was disgusting um but it was, it was very, very mushy and filled with maggots. And we had to get it into the back of a rental van and then drive back to Edinburgh. <laughs> and this was during a heat wave. No! Um, so no! It, it was really, really bad. And I, I, I showered for like an hour afterwards to try and get this. I'd, I feel like it had permeated my skin and I had to get the train back to London the next day and we were stuck um, for about two hours because of a signal failure just outside of London. And I swear the people next to me were like trying to hold their nose. And I was like, oh, it was a dead whale. It's not me. <laughs> That's worse. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, which is better, I guess. It's <laughs> not me, it's the fact that I was collecting a dead animal. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure who I'd rather be sitting next to. <laughs> um, what are your future plans with your investigations in bone? So my investigations in bone sounds like an excellent book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, It's exactly. a good book title. Um, I would love to kind of increase my my collection and also learn more about the collection that we have at the RVC because we are quite an old institution. Uh, we're like 229 years old. So there are sometimes, uh, the head of anatomy always jokes about it, you open up a cupboard that people haven't opened in a while and there's like a polar bear skull in there. And you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> well, of course. Uh, so I'd definitely le- like to learn more about our archives and the things that we have there. Obviously, at the minute, what with not really going outside much in 2020 um, or doing much delving around, uh, looking for roadkill to scoop up, uh, I've not I've not had the chance to. But I do have a few things that I'd like to fully articulate. So I have a ringnet parakeet at work um, that I'd like to, to wow. articulate because they're super interesting. Again, London animal that people are really aware of because they, they're so unusual and invasive. Uh and loud. <laughs> so loud. I go bird watching quite a lot and, and taking photos of birds in Regent's Park. And every time oh, I'm yeah. like, oh, my God, please shut up. <laughs> yeah, they are super loud. Super noisy. Uh, but I think that'd be a really fun one to articulate because bone um, birds have pneumatized bones. So their, their breathing goes into their air sacs and then flows into their bones. And uh, yeah, what? they've got, they have very, very weird breathing. It's a, it's a system so that they can essentially, they can fly um, and they can continue breathing in the impact of all of that air hitting them. Um, right. Okay. And it's like the best way for them to, you know, most efficient way, but also yeah. the pneumatization makes their bones therefore hollow. And so they're super, super light. So they can take Mm. off um so that's why it's much easier to break bird bones um so chicken bones are quite easy to snap so the parakeet will be be an unusual one to work with i think they particularly have really really thin skulls and so it'll be a a test of how careful i can be working with them um but yeah i do think that skulls in particular kind of invoke quite a lot of both sciency and arty feelings. I think that a lot they've been used so commonly in art and in literature and I think that they can be a really nice bit between my arty and my creative sides of my personality. Um and I can learn loads about the anatomy, but I can also learn loads about what schools men in different eras for different cultures. And I think that's really really cool area to work in. Yeah, it sounds like an like an unlimited field, really. Like you could never finish learning about, like you say, all the different kind of cultures and symbolisms about bones in different societies. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. So if people have enjoyed hearing about bone and all the different ways that you can treat an animal to get the bones out and learn all sorts of things about them, where can they go to find out more? So in London, uh, so I'm, I live in Camden because I work at the Royal Veterinary College, which is based in Camden. And there are loads of places in London, so many skeletons in London, it's great. I I would always, first of all, recommend the Royal Veterinary College. The only thing is that it's not kind of open access the way that some other places are. So you'd have to come along to maybe one of the events that I run, like Night of the Vet College. 
Ah, promo. Um, hopefully they will be back up and running sometime in 2021. And so that's a really great opportunity to come and see our museum. It's all uh, animals that are useful for vets to learn about. So for example, we have uh, Eclipse and Fox Hunter, who are two racehorses. Uh, Eclipse was actually the reason that the Royal Veterinary College was founded, because he was super fast. And so they did a post-mortem after he died to understand why. And then they realised, oh, learning about animals is useful, isn't it? And founded the Royal Veterinary (laughs) College. Uh, Fox Hunter was used to create Bookbeak for uh, Warner Brothers, which was really, really cool. Mm -hmm. So they uh, 3D scanned him so that they could create an anatomically correct looking animal, which was half eagle, half horse, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, We also have things like many different dog species skulls. And that's really, really interesting to see the difference between, for example, the ancestral species of a wolf, looking at a Doberman and how similar it can be, and then looking at a pug or a chihuahua and how not similar it can be. Uh, We also have an (laughs) elephant in our cafe, because why not? Um, (laughs) It's great. Uh, It's really fun to have meetings in there with people who don't know. And then you're like, Shall we address the elephant in the room? And they're like, <laughs> how many times have oh, you said that so, to me? So, so many times. And I really love it every time. Uh, they don't seem to. Um, there's, there's also, uh, obviously, loads of people will know about the Natural History Museum. They obviously have yeah, yeah. a ton, like thousands of animal skeletons, but they also do have, uh, possibly not on show, but they have it as part of their archive. I think 740 human remains. So they're from people who wow. have lived in London for the past 5,000 years. And so it includes, oh my God. you know, the Iron Age and people who lived in this area of land. And then up to things Amazing. like uh, when they looked in St. Bride's Church on Fleet Street, the uh, charnel house that was underneath all of the remains from there. So there's so many cool things you can see there. Obviously, Grant Museum of Zoology, amazing at UCL, has a quagga and a thylacine, so recently extinct animals that can be super cool for people to see. At the Horniman, brilliant selection of great apes, and they are set bipedally, so you can kind of see how their their skeleton looks like compared to ours, which is really interesting. Mm. Uh, Huntarium is currently closed, uh, but it will be opening, I believe, in 2022. And that one houses loads of really interesting pathological uh, specimens. So things like uh, spines that were affected by tuberculosis or uh, people who were affected by things like acromegaly. So they were quite large. It's got some interesting Mm. ethics around it. And as all human remains uh, displays do have, but I think it's really interesting. And then there's also obviously UCL's Jeremy Bentham's head, um, who... (laughs) <laughs> it's it's in there somewhere. Uh, I would really, really recommend there is a YouTube series that is done by a lady called Catelyn Doherty, and she also is an author. It's called Ask a Mortician, and she actually does a whole kind of history of Jeremy Bentham's head and other similarly preserved uh, human remains. And it's really, really cool. I would really recommend listening to her and reading her stuff. Uh, The Smoke Gets in Your Eyes is my favourite book by her. Oh, nice. Great recommendations. (laughs) Thanks. 
Um, is there anywhere not in London that we can recommend for people or like any online resources maybe? Uh, so there's obviously there's plenty of cool things that have popped up in the last year. So because museums need to uh, showcase their work and and hopefully you can donate if you are able to, to use any of their resources to help keep these places going because the people who work in museums love it and they are some of the most fantastic people and unfortunately they've had to close over the past year so there's the natural history museum has a number of online tours that you can go on i believe the grant museum of zoology does as well uh, so do always keep an eye out for those kind of things and if uh, yeah if anybody does know of any more do let me know because i want to see them <laughs> Anytime I can look yeah. at some bones, I want that opportunity. Uh, when <laughs> when travel becomes more of a thing, I would really, really recommend people uh, visiting the Sedlec Ossuary, which is in Czech Republic, or the Capella, de, uh, Capella dos Ossos, which is in Portugal, and that both of those are uh, chapels that are entirely decorated with human bones. So they have a wow. human bone chandelier, uh, a human bone crest it's really cool and the Capella dos Ossos on the outside of the the kind of entrance it says we bones lying here bare await yours which I just think is super cool <laughs> that's super dark yeah. but pretty cool and it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> And if people have enjoyed hearing from you and they want to check out your work, um, where can they find you online? So I am under Punk Biologist on essentially everything. So that's my website, that's my Twitter, my Instagram. I do also have Punk Biology Art. Uh, follow me there if you want to encourage me to actually do more art. Uh, but yeah, Punk Biologist on everywhere that you can possibly find me. And yeah, if you do want to hear more about bones, which I often do post about, or about birds, because those are the only animals I can see at the minute in lockdown. Um, please do follow me there. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really awesome to finally chat to you about <laughs> all the stuff that you've been up to. Yeah, really great to chat. <laughs> really good to hear from you too. So that was the marvellous Lucy Eckersley on Working With Bones. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to come on the podcast. That's everything for this time. As always, I'd be super grateful if you could like, subscribe and review the podcast. If you'd like to give a one-time donation to help support us, keep us going, you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. If there's a material you'd like to hear covered, then get in touch. We're at Real Talk on Twitter, that's R-I-A-L Talk, or on Instagram at handmadepod. You can send us a longer message via email, that's realtalkpodcast at gmail.com. As always, a huge thank you to Dave Shepard for our marvellous cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next time, we'll be hearing from leather historian Tom Rusbridge. But until then, take very good care, look after yourselves, and I'll see you next time on Handmade. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.